presumptively a huge pleasure uh, to uh, introduce to you uh, Rupert Jones, who's going to be looking at this uh, state of play in Afghanistan. Um, Rupert and I have a bit of history, uh, in the sense that we actually, when I was a soldier many, many years ago, back in the days of the Norman Conquest, um, he and I, we were in the same third uh, of um, Harold, uh, Devonshire and Dorset third, uh, fighting the Norman Conquest. Um, actually, to be truth to be, he was educated at Shevham, and at Reading University, where he read history, commissioned in Devonshire and Dorset Regiment, 1991, Times Regiment of the Aldrich Army, and served uh, in Germany, Northern Ireland, and uh, in Bosnia. Uh, of course, he's gone, uh, as you expect, uh, to have a very exciting career indeed. Command, uh, Chief of Staff for 12 Mech Brigade in Iraq, commanded four rifles, 2008 to 2010, um, and then, uh, obviously, the commitment of following that to Herrick, um, including, uh, very importantly, the position to uh, the election support force. And what was very interesting was that I actually asked to go and join that particular uh, effort and end up getting diverted to Kandahar uh, and uh, Zabul instead, so I never got that chance to come and work with them, never mind. Um, he's worked uh, within the MAD as well, so he understands all the sort of necessary necessities of being a Whitehall warrior, SA3 and Director of Military Operations, uh, particularly interesting role in military systems and counterterrorism. A few things I definitely want to talk about later, Rupert. Uh, military systems, the MAD's Director of Operations, uh, and Armed Forces uh, representative um, advising the Northern Steering Group during the Central Northern Debate, and uh, also worked as Colonel Army Strategy Force CGS. Um, we bumped into other most recently, I think probably the High Command Staff Course, uh, where you've got glowing reports, I understand, um, and has now been in command of one mech brigade, and he'll be doing that until later this summer. Indeed. Indeed. Um, so, Rupert, thank you very much for agreeing to me. Thank you. No, pleasure. Thank you, Rob, uh, for that very full introduction. Um, I confess I stand here with a degree of trepidation, A, uh, because I look at a very august body, um, uh, and you're very properly scrutinise my words, but actually far more specifically, because as I arrived, I wasn't quite certain where in Oxford I was coming to, luckily my driver knew, but as I arrived here, I, I realised I was coming to the venue of uh, what used to be the Oxford University Officer Training Corps that used to be on this very site uh, in the days before the Norman Conquest, before I even served with Rob. Uh, so I spent a great deal of my younger days, my formative uh, military time, uh, on this very site, as they were a very different site back then. Uh, but it's a great privilege uh, to be here with you today. Thank you uh, very much uh, for inviting me. I always welcome the opportunity to talk uh, about that because uh, I think it's much uh, misunderstood uh, and there's plenty out there who either misunderstand it or don't know what's going on. Indeed, I was on a train recently on my way up to London to uh, give a presentation. I was in service dress. I wasn't uh, exactly looking inconspicuous. And the gentleman opposite me uh, it transpired was an academic, engaged me in conversation, and I told him what I was about to do, giving a talk. Uh, I talked about progress in Afghanistan, and he gave me that knowing look that so many people do when you talk about progress in Afghanistan. Uh, and he then went on to lecture me about uh, the previous Afghan wars, and therefore, by extension, it was quite clear there is no progress in Afghanistan. I would like to think that this body would recognise that the circumstances of the, of the, pre the historic Afghan wars uh, and what the international community have been seeking to do over the last decade are very different. Not least, there was nothing to do with imperialism in this, I'd like to think. Uh, and it has been about developing uh, Afghanistan for the Afghan government, uh, not for our own benefit. But, uh, but you can come back to me on that. But as a, uh, a much misunderstood uh, endeavour, I would suggest. 
Uh, I should highlight I'm out of date. Uh, so I came home six months ago. So I'm going to talk about progress in Afghanistan through the optic of the summer of 2013. Uh, I've kept a pretty good handle on what's happened since, so I can delve into that, not least over the election period. Uh, but what has been impressive, I was saying outside, is actually the plan since last summer has rolled out pretty effectively in terms of what had been intended. Uh, but, but I am a touch out of date. But I used last summer uh, as a vignette uh, in Helmand uh, to reach into the wider subject of uh, progress in Afghanistan. Summer of 2013, really important period in the campaign. I think we judged as such because that's when the Afghans took the lead, formally took the lead from international forces, and then went straight into a, into a summer fighting season. Uh, so a really, really important uh, period. Vital that the Afghans succeeded uh, up front. Uh, and I think the other point was, so vital they succeeded, uh, but if they failed, we would have failed. And you get into a really interesting balance in terms of not underwriting their successes, the successes being substantially theirs, but if they fail, we fail. And, and you're always in a sort of delicate balance in terms of how much you therefore uh, support them. Um, I'm going to talk a lot, a lot about him uh, because it is about the Afghans in the lead. It's no longer about the international forces. Uh, so I'm going to talk about him uh, and his police and indeed uh, civilian uh, counterparts. Uh, really, they're, they're the very heart uh, of the story. Um, the campaign, you know, what we've been doing for the last couple of years have been very, has been very much about the Afghans. Uh, ISAF commanders are not writing the plan. Afghans are writing the plan. Uh, we are contributing to that plan, but fundamentally it's an Afghan plan. We military tend to be control freaks, and therefore we don't like not being in control. It is very uncomfortable not being in control, but we haven't been in control for well over a year now, and we've been iteratively handing off control for a considerable period uh, prior to that. But it, is, it does occasionally put you in uh, an uncomfortable place. So the summer of 2013 is, is what I'm going to talk about as saying questions uh, we can reach forward in 2014 and indeed looking further out uh, than that. I said already 2013 really important year. Uh, irritatingly, of course, the insurgent also understood it was a really important year because he knew that if he was going to demonstrate that the Afghan security forces were not a credible security organisation, they had to start that narrative in 2013. Can't wait till 14, can't wait till ISAF forces have gone. You've got to start the narrative. Because as every month, week, uh, every month, year goes by, the Afghan security forces get stronger. So the insurgent knew that he had to hit the Afghan security forces hard uh, from when they took formal control. The other uh, thing that I th think that they, uh, the insurgent sought to do last year, uh, again, I would argue unsuccessfully, was, was to begin to uh, paint the narrative that they precipitated the international withdrawal. Much talked about as a narrative. Uh, they hadn't achieved an, a, any real substance behind that narrative. In 2013, they began to try to turn up the tempo on that narrative, again, unsuccessfully. But what we tended to see was where they, where they did attack international forces, it wasn't harassing attacks. You know, killing a soldier doesn't get you any, anywhere very much, uh, except cause quite a lot of sadness. You've got to do more than that. What they were looking to do was spectacular attacks uh, that would reach uh, Western headlines. That, that, was, that was the aim. Uh, and you saw a change in, in technique. The Taliban always very good at evolving their, their procedures, continuing attempt to evolve their techniques to hit us hard. Uh, the picture is not coming out that clearly, but bottom right, you know, that is a 
that is a, um, uh, a Georgian checkpoint uh, that's just been hit by a lorry-borne IED in two attacks just north of us. Ten Georgians killed, and from memory, I think there's 59 injured in two single attacks, or two attacks. Now, uh, the Georgian defence minister was pretty robust about that, and I don't think it achieved very much narrative effect with the Georgians at all. I would suggest if you've done that to an American base, or to a British base, the response in Washington and London would have been very, very significant. Uh, the Americans are just as vulnerable in media terms to that sort of thing happening uh, as we are now. So they, they've probably got their target wrong, but if you've done that to the British or the Americans uh, successfully last summer, uh, I think uh, our, our respective politicians would have had a, a nervous moment. The only thing I want to touch on there, and you might come back to any questions if it interests, is that it does mean that you're at a stage of the campaign where force protection is fundamental. And I used to use the point, you've got, you've got to maintain your freedom to operate. If you're taking heavy casualties, you are going to lose your freedom to operate. Because our politicians are seeing their campaign in the final stages. Uh, they want to ensure that we're not losing undue quantities of troops. And if you suffer significant numbers of casualties, uh, then you will have your freedom constrained and your ability to deliver campaign progress uh, will be reduced. So you've got, to make, you've got to protect the force so you can retain your freedom to operate. So I'd like to talk a bit about the Afghan security forces. So I'm going to talk uh, unashamedly primarily about Helmand, uh, but what is going on in Helmand is broadly reflected uh, elsewhere in the country. The Afghan army and police in Helmand are neither better nor worse uh, than elsewhere in the country. They, they kind of sit in a, in a good place, but they are broadly reflective. I think uh, most uh, people, most spectators are pretty judgmental about the quality of the Afghan security forces. I should say that the slides are really there just for the kind of visual stimulation. There's not many text on them. They're just, just to accompany my words as I go through. Um, but we're, we're quite judgmental about the, uh, the Afghan security forces. But the reality is they have made extraordinary progress. You would kind of hope they would. We've been working with them for a long time. Uh, but they really have made uh, very significant progress. They're unrecognisable in the main from the pretty ill-disciplined, poorly equipped uh, force that we were dealing with earlier in the campaign. And if you've got in your mind some drug-crazed lunatic, that's not the Afghan security force uh, uh, soldier or policeman in the main. Uh, and I hope I will persuade you of that through the talk. Afghan security forces very significantly tested during 2013, not just down in the south, but throughout the, the country, for the reasons that I described. The, the Taliban had to demonstrate these guys were not capable of giving the Afghans security. They were very heavily tested, there's no doubt about it. But did they hold? Yes, they did. Of course they were tested. You know, the insurgent weren't going to give them an easy ride. But it doesn't matter about whether or not you're tested. What matters is how you respond to that test. Uh, and as a, uh, my experience was that they held uh, very, very effectively. And I would say, without word of a lie, that the dominant security actor in Helmand and more widely across Afghanistan is now these people. It's not Western forces. These are the dominant security actor, and they are delivering effective security. Uh, vitally, uh, I think that as we gave them their independence, they have flourished. And one of the things that we were constantly trying to uh, measure last summer was will and confidence. You know, not just success, not you know, victories, but will and confidence, because it is all about, it's all psychological. Will and confidence. We had all sorts of clever metrics as how you could judge will and confidence. I won't bore you with, with them unless you're interested. 
But what you very quickly discovered is the metrics were just backing up what you saw day in, day out. You go and see a police commander, an, an Afghan army commander, and his will and confidence was punching you in the face because he was just, he was so buoyant uh, about what they were doing. They were, they were flourishing uh, on their independence. And so you didn't really need metrics to see uh, how confident they were. Uh, you know, they, they were like a kid with a toy. You know, they, they've got the toy and it's theirs and they were really pleased uh, to have it. And importantly, I think what we saw last year, if anything sort of defined uh, their development last year, was the degree to which they moved to an operational design that w of their own volition that we've been persuading them to move to for the last two years. But they haven't gone. Uh, so we've been inviting them to generate reserves to manoeuvre in the depth of the insurgent, do all these clever things that we Western militaries do, and they weren't really doing it. Why? In their heart, because they knew that if they didn't do it, we would do it for them. And it's a long war for them. And why would you go and do those pretty dangerous things if in your heart you know somebody else could do it for you? And so last summer they saw for the first time that we just weren't going to do it for them. And either they were going to do it or nobody was going to do it. And of their own volition, they started to do all of those things, generating reserves where they'd never had reserves, mounting very big and frequent operations into the depth of the insurgents in a way that they just hadn't previously. To me, it's about basic human behaviours. They recognise now nobody else was going to do it for them, and so they started to do it, and they did it really quite uh, effectively. And I can, again, I can come back to that uh, if you would like. Um, the army, uh, specifically... Uh, the, the Afghan army, uh, you know, they're a good force. You know, they're fielded about 350,000 strong. Uh, it's not about numbers, of course. It is about quality. Uh, and the quality, of course, varies. I'm not, I'm not claiming otherwise. Uh, but where they are good, they are really very good. Uh, and a phrase that I heard being used a lot last summer is, if they want to, they can. So again, if it's in their interests to do something to clear a piece of ground, to defeat an insurgent, they are more than capable uh, of doing so. Whenever the Afghan army, uh, in my experience, came up against the Taliban, there was only going to be one winner, and it was the Afghan army. The army would take casualties, of course they would. You know, an insurgent can kill soldiers very effectively, there's no doubt, but, but you don't achieve success by just killing soldiers. Uh, and wherever they came into conflict with each other directly, uh, the Afghan army would win very effectively. Yeah, and you might have seen last summer that the insurgent made a uh, big offensive up in Sangin. You know, Sangin has always been a bit of a running sore uh, for inter international forces, and they made a big play up in Sangin last summer. The Afghan forces reinforced. They took the brigade that operates with the British down in central Helmand and pushed it up into Sangin. And those photos are of 3215 Brigade, the brigade the British Army has been working with for the last seven, eight years. That brigade is highly impressive. So it should be. You know, the amount of international effort we've put into it over that period, so it should be. But it went up to Sangin and gave what I can only describe as a masterclass. <coughs> the manner in which it performed uh, in clearing into very, very well-defended uh, Taliban positions that have been held by the Taliban throughout the conflict that we have never held and, and this brigade went straight through those enemy and uh, any western force would have been proud of achieving what that brigade achieved 
And so at some stage, you've got to begin to stop, or we have got to stop looking down our noses at the Afghan army and give them respect for what they're tactically capable of. You know, top right, that D30, their artillery piece, those of you who've been involved in this will know that we haven't done very well with t uh, teaching them about artillery. It's, it's been a, um, a frustrating journey uh, at best. Why? Well, in part because they always knew that we would provide them with artillery support. Well, they know we're now not going to provide them with artillery support. So funny old thing, they go back to their guns and they dust off the manuals and they're really quite good with their artillery. So again, it comes back to human behaviour. If they know we're going to do it for them, uh, they won't necessarily step up to, step up to the plate. Um, so, I mean, really very, very impressive. And please come back to me later and pick, pick my brains on that. But the Afghan army, the good bits of the Afghan army, more than capable of uh, clearing uh, and holding terrain uh, for, uh, for the Afghan government. There are shortfalls, and I'll come back to those later. The police. You'll know that the, you know, the, the journey with the police wasn't always very pretty. We, the Western community, didn't do a very good uh, job up front at the start of the campaign. We certainly didn't carry across the right lessons from Iraq. It didn't do particularly well with the police in Iraq either. Um, but there were plenty of reader crosses uh, from what we got right and wrong in, in Iraq that we didn't carry across into Afghanistan up front. But because of that, or in part because of that, the Afghan police never had a dependency culture toward, towards international forces in the way that perhaps the Afghan army did. The police never had that dependency. So we've helped them, we've developed them, but they've never been wholly uh, reliant on us. Again, you, you will be able to point to examples where policemen uh, in Afghanistan do bad things. But if you step away from those in individual vignettes, again, my experience in Afghanistan, in Helmand, is that, that the police do an okay job. They really do. They've come on enormously. They've got good leaders, genuinely impressive, charismatic commanders who want to deliver security. Unlike the army, the police tend to come from the provinces where they are policing. They've got a vested interest in, in providing policing. And you see genuine incidents, incidents going of, of something you would recognise to be community policing. Um, the Helmand monitoring uh, that's been done by the Foreign Office uh, for the last four or five years provides excellent polling data. And one of the most uh, interesting bits of polling data they come up with is to do with policing. Again, I'm a little bit out of date on this, but the, the statistic last, late last year uh, was that the Afghan police in Helmand have a well over 90% approval rating. Well, I think most of our police forces would quite like a 90% approval rating back here. Um, now, I'm not suggesting for a moment, therefore the Helmand police are better than uh, the police in Britain. Of course they're not. But what, what sits behind that approval rating is, I believe, a general view amongst, amongst the people of Helmand that the police are giving them an acceptable form of security and that they're paying a reasonable price for it. Price, open brackets, corruption, taxation. But those people are willing to pay that taxation to get the security that they get in return. And again, we should be careful of being too judgmental about that form of uh, institutionalised corruption. And again, uh, I'd happily come back to that uh, in questions. Um, so, I would... Uh, suggest to you the police and the army have made really, really good progress, not the finished articles. Um, 
However, of course, we've been doing a lot for them. We're not doing the fighting anymore. But again, you know, our commentators will then will highlight that the critical, what we call the enablers, that really underpin uh, success. Well, we've been doing that for the Afghans, haven't we? And once you take away, these are generally called the big five enablers. Once you take away these big five, well, it'll all fall apart, won't it? Well, possibly. Um, I mean, the first thing I'd say before I go through, through each of these in turn is that we've been stepping back from the Afghans in, in what I think is a very responsible manner over the last at least 24, 36 months. You know, we, you edge back, you edge back, you edge back, always constantly reassuring yourselves that the Afghans are ready for the next stage uh, of their independence. And once you get to where we were last summer, we weren't providing this support to them. It was, it was available if it was really, really needed. And, and I mentioned it earlier that if they failed, we would have failed. And the, therefore, the constant judgment you're trying to make as a commander is when do you need to step in? And there's a number of different ways of doing that, of course. Our broad conclusion was what we called light and early was the best way. So broadly, if you see an, Ang uh, an Afghan force conceptually stumbling, you'd find out step forward, give a very light hand to their elbow, steady them, and then step straight back away again. Our experience was that was the more effective way of doing business. The, the alternative is to let them genuinely fall to their knees, you know, nose in the sand, and then yank, yank, yank them to the feet. Um, our, our preference was light early, pretty transparent to the Afghan population, and then step away again. As I say, judging how to do that uh, in the midst of an incident is quite difficult. So, how will the Afghans do... Uh, uh, provide these sorts of supports because this is all pretty high-tech stuff that we potentially provide them with. Well, let's start with counter improvised explosive device uh, support. Well, the first thing is that we're done. The Afghans can do this. And they've been in this place for well in excess of 12 months now. Where there, the Afghan army and the police who are slightly behind, but in broadly the same place, they don't need our bomb disposal experts. They've got bomb disposal teams that are more than capable of doing this and are, and are uh, structured in a sustainable manner. They don't use exactly the same technology as us, but they've been trained to use their technology. So bomb disposal, done. Uh, they genuinely do not need our support. Quick reaction force. Well, when they call for our quick reaction force, what they mean is they want an Apache attack helicopter to come over the horizon and, and drop bombs. Well, that's what they need is quick, quick reaction forces. They want their own troops coming quickly. And as I've said to you already, they recognise that we're not going to provide the quick reaction forces any longer, uh, and they have those forces at their disposal, and they recognise that they need to have them, uh, have them available all the time. Uh, casualty evacuation, which is a you know, really, really big one. I'll come back to attrition uh, in a minute. Everyone's always said, you know, once, once we're not providing them the, the casualty evacuation, they're going to struggle. Well, the harsh reality is, when we're not evacuating their casualties, their morbidity rate will go up. Of course it will. You know, that, you know, we know that to be the case. But that's what their casualty evacu evacuation looks like. They'll bring a vehicle and they will drive the casualty to the nearest hospital. As I say, their morbidity rate will go up as a result. But the police have not been using our casualty evacuation for a long time. They put them in a vehicle and they drive them to the hospital. Of course, that will influence how they operate. Because they knew that our, our helicopters were available, sometimes they would operate quite aggressively they knew our helicopters were there to back them up. Human nature, they will just draw themselves back a little bit. They'll be a touch more cautious. Um, but they have got their own casualty evacuation. And again, I can talk in questions, if you'd like, about the work that's been done 
to develop a credible hospital capability for them. Helmand was really the, uh, the, the, the Afghan core area that was weakest in terms of uh, leaving a, an enduring hospital facility for them, but that's caught up considerably uh, in the last year, particularly in the last six months. Surveillance. So we provide them all our, you know, what I call exquisite technology, technology that, you know, Rob certainly didn't have as a, as a platoon commander. I didn't have as a company commander. The Afghans don't need that technology. Western armies didn't have that technology until very, very recently. The Afghans rather like the fact that they're operating, they're operating alongside that's got this wonderful technology, but they certainly don't know how to use it, and they recognise in themselves that, A, it wouldn't be sustainable if they had it, and secondly, they don't need it. Of course, one of the critical reasons why we need our explicit technology is we don't know what's going on. Afghans know what's going on far, far better than we do because, particularly in the case of the police, it's their province. They understand the human dynamic in a way that we simply don't, and therefore their human intelligence is much, much better than ours. And therefore, a lot of the time, we're using high-tech uh, equipment to plug a gap because we just don't really understand because we're, we're a Western army uh, operating uh, in Afghanistan. And then the final one that people always point to uh, is fires. Um, and as I think I've pointed to already, uh, they recognise that our, our fires are going uh, and therefore they are they're working very hard. They're making real progress now uh, with their own integral fires. I've talked about their artillery pieces. They were issued mortars for the first time last year and you speak to any of the mortar teams who were training them they would highlight that the Afghans seem to have, have a natural aptitude for using mortars, genuinely. Uh, so they've got their own fires. Uh, and then, I haven't touched on, again, we can talk about it in questions, the work that's ongoing uh, to develop their, their air force, which has been a difficult journey. Those who've been involved in it will know about it. It's been a pretty slow journey, but, but I think it's fair to say there is finally a, a reasonably sustainable uh, bit of work being done to really get the Afghan air force uh, into the sort of place that the Afghan government would want it to be. Uh, probably, I forget the exact time frame, but sort of broadly out to about 2017, uh, ongoing work uh, with, uh, particularly with the United States. So, I, I would argue they, they don't need, even need our, our neighbours. They certainly don't people, need people like me, they don't really need our soldiers, they, and they don't need our neighbours. The next area that people would point to is attrition. Well, yes, okay, so the Afghans are in the lead, but they're taking a lot of casualties, aren't they? would go the relatively defeatist uh, narrative. And of course the answer to that is, yes, of course they're taking more casualties. They're in the lead. You know, we were taking the casualties on their behalf. Uh, and Afghan commanders recognise that. They'll look at walls, roles of honour of Western forces. And, and I've heard a number of commanders do it, going, it's our turn now. You've taken, you've given your sacrifices, now our turn to take the sacrifice. So of course their casualty numbers are going to go up. Actually they haven't gone up as high as many people uh, would suggest they have. But vitally, we should view their casualty figures through their optic, not our own. So this is a non-discretionary campaign for them. Uh, and therefore, you know, they, they, they recognise they have got to take those casualties. Uh, and vitally, they judge those casualties against their own progress and against the number of casualties they've imposed on the insurgent. Not a manner that we would wish to do. It slightly takes you back to sort of the Vietnam body bag sort of metric. But this is their metric for their own audience. So as I say, they, they judge their own casualties very much about what they're achieving against the enemy uh, and the progress that they are making. I said already that they're certainly not the, the finished uh, 
article, but what we've done uh, iteratively is lift off them more and more and more, such that we're barely on the ground with them anymore. This is where the focus has been uh, increasingly for the last 12 or 18 months and is very firmly focused now, is on the institutions. Um, up in Kabul, getting the ministries as well sorted as they should be, down through, uh, in the case of the army and the police out in the provinces, to the core level, the equivalent of our divisional level, so the major general level, uh, and the equivalent of, of the police side, really deepening the institutions. This is where there continues to be uh, work to be done, particularly on their sustainability. So the police and the army can go out and fight very effectively at the tactical level, and they, as I think I've suggested to you, will win. That is not to say that the, the, the manner in which the brigade uh, and the so police district then docks together up through the Lairs Command into the, into the ministries in Kabul are as, as sophisticated as they could, they could be. The, the resupply structure, the procurement structure, the, the way budgets flow through the police and the army are not as sophisticated as, as they need to be and, there's, and that's where the real efforts are, are, go, are going on at the moment. You might argue, not unreasonably, that the international community should have done more of that earlier, and I think that it would be a very fair observation. Why is it only now that we're really beginning to teach them about budget flows into their core headquarters, for example? Um, but, but that's where there's a lot of work uh, going on at the moment. That, incidentally, is a photo of uh, what's called the Regional Core Battle School. Uh, anyone who knows what I'm talking about, so Brecon and things, is where they teach their infanteers. Uh, pretty advanced soldiering. They're hugely proud of that. That's in, that's in Helmand. Very, very proud of it. Uh, there's, a, there's a police equivalent. You know, we're barely involved anymore. These guys run these courses and they've overcome the institutional blockage about wanting to learn. Historically, Afghan soldiers and police just want to be out policing and fighting. Increasingly, they've understood that they're better fighters if they come out of the line some of the time and come to, to places like this. Uh, and again, good, good, good progress. Not the final answer, but good progress. Um, just a very qu quick sort of plea for understanding, if you like. There has been a little bit of a narrative over probably the last year that uh, British forces, international forces, aren't on the ground anymore. Uh, that's deeply disingenuous. does a gross disservice to our soldiers. Uh, and I think uh, is misleading to, to your average newspaper reader. Um, he or she will be quite disappointed to discover that soldiers have been killed if he or she believes there's no troops on the ground anymore. There are, there have to be, there must be right up until the, to the very end. Firstly because, as I've indicated, we're lifting off the Afghans iteratively and therefore you know, some of the time we are on the ground with them. We've got to keep a, a relationship with the Afghans right to the end, not least because we need their support as we extract from Afghanistan. Um, unless we have a, an enduring relationship with them, they won't support us in those final stages. And secondly, because for as long as you have got troops, in our case in Helmand, Helmand is an inherently dangerous place, and the insurgent will wish to make our journey out of Helmand as uncomfortable as possible. Uh, and you cannot just sit back in your bases, rely on the Afghans to provide you the protection, because the insurgent will come to your bases and he will ruin your day in a, in a very real way. Because the Afghan forces, very properly, will be focused on Afghan security. And therefore, you can't really expect them to be doing security for your bases as well. So please just understand, you know, we, we continue to spend uh, quite a considerable amount of time on the ground uh, protecting ourselves uh, in, in depth. And again, happy to talk about that in questions 
uh, if you'd be interested. Um, I want to talk a bit about, I talk quite a lot about the security line of operation. Um, the reality is, district governors and governors are not really interested in security anymore. We are going to sit down with them and they're just not really interested. Why are they not really interested in security? It's passe, they've moved beyond that. Security in many places, not everywhere, in many places is taken as a given. In places where you were fighting two, three years ago, the district governor is taking it as a given. What he wants to talk to you about is flood relief, crop cycles, elections, things that our councils might talk about. Uh, and again, if security is not on their agenda, that, that tells you something quite significant, I think, about uh, the progress uh, that has uh, been made. Indeed, you know, you've got a couple of photos there of people voting, not from the recent national election, but the, the district council elections that have been held in the last 12 months or so in, in Helmand. I say Helmand because most places don't have district councils, but Helmand does. Um, it's a rugby scrum to vote. I mean, they're mad for it. You know, they understand what, what um, democracy potentially does for them. They recognise it gives them a voice in their local business, in their local area. Um, well, again, you know, that's, that's a really powerful narrative. That's not us imposing democracy on them. That's a system being put in place that they have bought into and they, that they want and that they recognise that it's a way of, of getting a voice. Of course, many of the people who are elected are the same sort of people who might uh, have uh, given tribal governance anyway. So it's going, it, often it's people being voted in who, who are part of, part of the tribal structure. But again, that's a good thing. You, know, you don't want to be running against the, uh, the Afghan governance grain. The national election the other day, which was met by a pretty muted response, I think it's fair to say, by most Western journalists, hugely significant. You know, all the talk, all the commentariat for the 12 months leading up to the election said, yes, but, wait until the election. You know, that'll be the big acid test. Well, the big acid test came, and it went. And the Taliban broadly failed to disrupt it, and it was a pretty successful election. No great surprises. Uh, they've got to go to a runoff. That's the way their constitution is written, and the, and the runoff will happen this, this, uh, later this year. But the two main candidates are, you know, in a good place. They're both pretty competent uh, operators. Uh, and the Taliban, I'm sure, will have another go at, at the runoff uh, later this month. But I confess, I find it quite disappointing that the international community, indeed the international media, are more interested in trumpeting that Afghan election. Uh, we're discussing it before, and it's not, it's not us being Trumpist. It's not us. We haven't done it. It was an Afghan election, very effective, effectively delivered, uh, and with the security given by uh, Afghan forces. So I think, you know... In terms of a metric of success, that, that was very, very powerful. The next thing that we need to see, before we have too much confidence, is the runoff uh, being successful, and then vitally, of course, the transition of power from Karzai to uh, his successor. Uh, and if that can happen, and if Kabul can come through that, uh, that handover of power with stability, then, then I think you know, those who are cautiously optimistic uh, can begin to... Uh, uh, think that their, you know, their, their view might be vindicated. I don't want to talk for too much longer, but um, I just want to say a couple of words on the insurgent. You know, the insurgent that would wish to disrupt this process. The insurgent that would wish to disrupt uh, the farming, the elections, the fact that people now have roads where they've never had them before. 
that transforms society. Um, the, the Taliban is not the force that it once was. Of that there is no doubt. He can still kill you, very happily. He can still mount a spectacular and gain newspaper headlines, but he is not the force that he once was. He's conflicted. He is struggling. He is short of money. He's short of weapons. In a great many places, he's now short of public support. Why is he short of public support? Because he hasn't got much to offer. And then that's made really hard when district governors, really inconvenient insurers, point out that the jihad is over. Why is the jihad over? Because the infidel is going home. And when you've got district governors saying that to tribal elders, the jihad is over. If you ever believed in the jihad, it's over. That is very, very uh, damaging uh, to, to the Taliban narrative. So the Taliban in most places, again, you can point to examples where this isn't the case, but in most places, uh, the Taliban um, are struggling. I believe, and again, you can come back at me on this, that the, in most places the Taliban don't want to take a district centre. Go back, those who've been <coughs> tracking this campaign since its early days, think back to you know, Taliban flags flying over district centres. I don't believe the Taliban want to do that anymore. Why don't I think they want to do it? Because they've got nothing to offer when they get there. I use the analogy a bit like a Labrador that steals a chicken. You know, once it's got, got the chicken in its mouth, it's a bit embarrassed, doesn't really know what to do with the chicken. The Taliban won't know what to do with a district centre in most places if it took a district centre because they haven't got anything to offer the people. At the moment, the people have got an offer. You know, it's a much better offer than they had 10 years ago. And it is to do with schooling. It is to do with access to some form of healthcare. It is access to some, some kind of security. The Taliban can't necessarily offer them that. Now, again, perhaps I'm an idealist, but again, you know, insurgencies are not decided by the insurgent nor insurgencies decided by the security forces. Insurgencies tend to be decided by the people. And again, I think in most places what you're seeing is that the people are making their, their judgment uh, and they're, judge they're, they're supporting the future, some form of governance, some form of uh, elected organisation. And again, it would be interesting to have a discussion about that uh, later. Um, okay. Um, very briefly then, I just want to talk about uh, a couple of other, other bits and pieces. Because progress has been going so well, uh, international forces have accelerated the rate at which we've stepped back uh, from the Afghan forces. You'll have heard about base closures, you might have seen this been called on, on the media recently. You know, we at one point had high-sided 200 bases in Helmand. We, the British, now have two, if you include Bastion as one of those. It's not really a British base, it's an international base. Uh, there's one other, won't be there for very, very much longer, like really not very much longer. Uh, and then we're all back in Bastion. Have we seen any change? The Americans almost completed their final, uh, what they call retrograde, out of northern Helmand. Have we seen any, seen any reduction in the security situation result? We genuinely haven't. You know, we're stepping into the next summer fighting season. I was reading the, the weekly reports this morning, no change to the, to the security situation. I think it's quite interesting uh, the degree to which the end of 2014 uh, pronouncement by our, by our politicians was a positive or a negative. Because go back when it was made, I can't remember, it was 2010, 11, I think it, that pronouncement was made. And there were lots of people sucking their teeth. You know, it's got to be conditions-based, not time-based, not least by the military saying that sort of thing. 
I think they might have been. They might prove to have been really wise, even if they even if they didn't know why they were doing it. Because I think that deadline of the end of fourteen has acted as a really powerful forcing function. Same saying that our prime minister placed some pretty hard nosed deadlines on British forces for last Christmas. Five thousand two hundred was a hard figure. He said we would be down to by last Christmas. And again, people get very ag agitated about those sort of deadlines. For me, they've acted as a forcing function. We, the military, would have stayed there to a, you know, forever, you know, just slowly polishing the Afghan forces, trying to make them better and better. What I hope I've shown to you is actually they can only really get better when we leave them to it, when we step, them, step right back uh, and just lift off to the institutional uh, level. So I think that those, forcing fun that those uh, pronouncements were actually uh, quite uh, powerful. Um, looking to the to the um, to the future, then, um, in the interest of time, I'm not going to talk too much about what uh, the army might and the military might have deduced uh, from this campaign. But I definitely would like to pick that up in, in questions if it's of interest to you, uh, because um, I think it's a matter of public record that you know this campaign has not been a bed of roses all the way through. Uh, the international community has a great deal to learn. Militaries uh, have a great deal to learn. I think we learnt a great deal uh, as we as we went through it. Uh, and I think there's a very interesting thing that that tells you about militaries, uh, plural, as learning organisations. I think that tells you some quite interesting things about what we more, might all conclude uh, over the next 10 years. I think we won't really know how good a learning organisation we've been from this campaign for another decade. I think we eventually did quite a good job learning in stride, but have we really learned? And again, I think that will take us a decade or so for us to, to really uh, understand. Um, but I, but I, don't want to, I, I won't cover that now, but I'd certainly be interested uh, in your thoughts and questions on it. I think we, the military, have got a, a challenge. You know, that, that soldier in Afghanistan, hugely well-prepared, exceptionally well-equipped, really, really well-trained, uh, he knows exactly what he's doing in Helmand uh, now. Uh, if he is, hasn't done multiple tours, the bloke to his left and his right most certainly have. All his commanders have done multiple tours. He knows what to do in Afghanistan. He knows how to make that, that place better. And he knows that it generally doesn't come out the bullet the barrel of his own gun. The challenge is, how do you make him just as competent for future conflicts, wherever they, they might may be? You could chuck out any number of interesting places where he might find himself in the future fighting a very different sort of operation to the one he's faced in Afghanistan. I think there's very interesting questions for the British Army uh, as to how you do that, because we can't afford 10 years. We can't uh, afford the sort of learning experience we had in Iraq and Afghanistan to get him to where he needs to be. We need to hit the next campaign in a much, a, a much more ready uh, place. And again, uh, I'll be interested in discussion on that. Um, I've not discussed... Um, well, let me, let me put it another way. I mean, I, I think that uh, through, our, through the international community's efforts and the huge efforts and sacrifices of the Afghan government and people, we've given Afghanistan, if nothing else, an opportunity. It is a transformed country. You know, they have access to, to technology that they couldn't have dreamt of 10 years ago. Mobile phones everywhere. You know, if that's a, that's a, that's a metric of technology, you know, it's out there concrete roads, you know, all these things that they couldn't access to markets. They have. 
They have an opportunity. Again, this idea that life is cheap. It's not cheap out there anymore. They have something to lose. Most people want what we want, and that is a livelihood for their families. So um, my thesis would be that the country is broadly transformed, certainly not the finished article, and that the Afghan people have been given an opportunity. That was really all that we could do. I think the international community has a definite responsibility to underwrite that opportunity going forward. And you know, there's, in, there's uh, undertakings by our governments uh, that we will do that. But as I say, it's certainly not the finished article. The Afghan security forces much further to go. Uh, you know, we could have a discussion around corruption, which we've talked about. We have consciously not talked about narcotics. You know that narcotics is, you know, kind of the elephant in the room much of the time. Uh, and the Western community, you know, it hasn't been our finest uh, piece of the campaign. Uh, some quite interesting Afghan initiatives in terms of how you uh, slowly uh, suppress uh, the poppy harvest. Um, again, if you want to uh, go into that uh, in questions. Um, as I say, in the interest of time, what I don't want to do is talk too much about what this tells us uh, about the army, lessons for the future and things, but I'll certainly be uh, interested in uh, taking questions on that. What I'd like to do is, is just make one final plea, if I may, and it's a plea that um, Nick Parker often uses, um, who many of you will know, and I think it's really, really important. Um, you, you are sort of, you are security politics experts have an interest in this uh, in this subject, but the general public uh, they view this campaign through the optic of sympathy. Uh, they will focus on the courage and they'll focus sacrifice on the on they'll focus on sacrifice, and they'll talk about the help for heroes charity you know looking after our injured servicemen, and of course that is hugely important. Uh, but what that uh, that sympathy has done is to quite a significant degree has compromised what the campaign was really about and the reality is we don't want sympathy our casualties don't want sympathy what we want people to do is to is to focus on the achievement what has been done out there the the courage of sacrifice is an inevitable byproduct of of the achievement um, so i would encourage you if you if you buy into the achievement if you buy into the fact that you know, there's about to be another successful election with a, with a transfer of governance. That uh, this is this is about the achievement, and what we really want people to do is to recognise what the Afghan people uh, have achieved, and in your small way, spread spread the word because the narrative is not out there, and you will all have your views. They may well be very similar to mine uh, as to why our governments and indeed our media haven't trumpeted progress in Afghanistan as much as somebody like me might wish. Uh, but but that, uh, the byproduct of that is that the, much of the public have no idea as to the achievement that has been delivered. And of course, in so many of our campaigns now, there's no such thing as winning and losing. It is about success. And the narrative is fundamental to your success. It's about perceptions. So if your government and if your media haven't been telling the story of success, have you actually achieved success? I'll leave that with you to consider. Rob, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much.